Thanks, Chad. Uh, I'm sure all of you are hungry now. Let's talk about Tasty. Uh, I know I am. And it's a great privilege, again, just to be able to, to share over the course of really the last two or three months have been uh, preaching the different opportunities I've had to look at the, the book of Romans and chapter 8. Just kind of been living there personally, and, and we've kind of walked through it if you've been here, hit and miss. And it's just been a, been a really a good time for me, and, and personally as well as just the, the preparation of sermons is always, it first hits here in my own life. And so uh, really as we've been looking at chapter 8, it's just a picture for us of the gospel. It's a picture for all that we have of, of those who are in Christ. Uh, namely, the, well, up to this point we've been looking at the first 17 verses of chapter 8, have been looking specifically at the, the glory of life in the Spirit. This amazing thing that God is finishing his work by his spirit that's at work in our lives. And so we see this picture as we're united with Christ, his spirit dwells in us and enables us. And there's a few different things that we've talked about already. Talked about the freedom that the spirit brings, that the spirit, the law of the spirit of life has set us free. And so no longer are we in bondage to sin. And then there's a, there's a picture following that in, in verses 5 through 8 and 9 where there's a picture of a reversal that's taking place that the spirit does. A reversal of the effects of the fall in our own lives. And this reversal basically turns us from death and hostility as it regards our relation with God to life and peace. And he gives us a great identity. Our identity is tied with him. Our identity is tied with God and our future is tied to him. And then we see the gospel culminating this picture in the last, last couple of times I preached in, in July 12 through 17. We have a picture of the spirit of adoption. That the spirit, the, the God's presence that he dwells in us is not a spirit of fear, but is a spirit of freedom. It's a spirit of adoption that no longer are we enslaved, but we have a relationship with, with God now in such a way that it is, he is our father. And so there's an intimacy, there's a security that we have in him. And so that culminates, the, the gospel really culminates in that picture for us. All that God has done in forgiveness of sin and redemption from the slavery of sin and the wrath of God poured out finds its high point, the richest blessing for us in adoption, that we're his children. So when we talk about him as our father and the relationships that we have with each other, that's a real thing. It's a real work that God has done on our behalf that we can address him as father and security that we have. And so that's really where we've come up to this point. And this morning I want to look at verses 26 through 30. And if you go ahead and open your Bibles, if, there, if you haven't, I want to pray for us. And I'm going to read uh, this section and, uh, and dive in. Heavenly Father, we're grateful uh, that you have given us this gospel. You've declared it to us and that we are yours. Um, you've met all of our needs and then some. You have made us your children and adopted us into your family with all of the rights and the privileges that are there. Father, we don't deserve it, but we're grateful for that. And this morning as we look even more clearly at what your spirit has done and does in our lives, it's his role. Um, Father, help us to see our continued need for your presence. Uh, use your word in our lives to open our eyes, to continue to transform us so that we would be more like Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Eight, I'm going I'm to start in verse 18 and read through chapter, or verse 30. So uh, to give us a little context, because I think this, this is important for us. Verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the re- revealing of the sons of God. 
For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Verse 26, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now I want to read verses 18 through 25 because it really sets the tone for the section we're going to look at this morning. Paul shifts in that section, 18 through 25, from explaining what the Spirit, the role of the Spirit in our lives, to explaining or describing the reality of the world in which we live. He describes it in such a way that he says that there's promise that's been made, but we live in this world in which there is a difference between the promise and the fulfillment of that. And so we wait for the fulfillment of our promise, the promise of our adoption. Indeed, the the language there talks about even creation longing and waiting for that to take place. And some of the words that are described in there is futility. There's a kind of confusion. There's suffering that's a part of that. There's difficulties. There's waiting. There's groaning that all describe the world that we live in, the, the reality and the time in which we live. It's been called the already and the not yet. Because it's already the kingdom of God and yet we are still waiting for the fulfillment, for the completion of all these things. And so it's in this context that we want to look at our passage. And Paul continues in verse 26. He says, likewise the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. Now he refers, he, he brings us back to this understanding of what the Spirit does. In light of our weakness, in light of our surroundings, in light of the world in which we live that is not yet finished, not, it, not yet as it should be. He says, likewise, the Spirit helps us in this setting, in this kind of way. He he helps us to live in this world. And so we need to read this section and apply it and understand it with that context. That we live in a world, as Dave Upchurch has described, as a veil of tears. There's something that's not quite right. And so we wait for what God will do. And this instruction comes to us. And even this verse 828 that we're familiar with of God working all things for good that we oftentimes throw around. It's a wonderful verse and sometimes we use it rightly and sometimes it can be misused and kind of ripped out of the context from which it comes because we want to say nice things. We want to say happy things to people who are in difficulties and yet if it doesn't come without the groaning and the longing and the suffering that the context calls us to to use it with then we can misuse it and misunderstand indeed what's being said here. And so we need to understand that what's taking place here in Romans 8.28, that God is working all things for good, 
but it's out of this longing and some of the difficulties and the suffering that we have that we understand that verse. And as we look at this passage this morning, there's a couple things I want to emphasize and I think we'll see that will come out. We'll learn about ourselves. Why do we need the Spirit of God's help in our lives? It's because we're weak. We're going to learn about ourselves. We're going to see how God then intercedes for us through His Spirit. And then we're going, to, we're going to find, more importantly, what it is that we need to know about God's work in terms of bringing good about in our lives. And so as we look at this, he starts it off, as I've said, likewise. He's basically returning to his argument, his support for what the role of the Spirit is in, his life, in, in our lives, the lives of the believers. He says, likewise, the Spirit helps in our weaknesses. And there's kind of a flow here. I'm going to use it kind of as a framework for the message this morning. You'll notice there's something that we don't know. And what we don't know is important that we know that we don't know that. That we're not aware of how to pray as we ought. And then there's something that God knows. And something that God knows is important for us because it will be sufficient. It will provide. It will fill in the gap for what we don't know. And then there's thirdly, there's something that we must know. There's something we must come to know. And that is this idea of Romans 8.28, that he will work all things to good. So you see the, the not knowing, what God knows, and then we must know and grow in our knowing of. This section concludes with a, just a powerful verse in verse 30, where Paul sets on display what's been called the panorama of salvation. And he says, for those who are predestined were called, and those who are called, those have been justified, and those who are justified have been glorified. And he puts on display eternity past, eternity future, and he says, this is what God has done, and it emphasizes God's sovereign role in salvation. And what's important for us to understand, even as we, we see that, is that it is a sure thing. It is God's work. And as he wants to give confidence and assurance to those there in Rome, and he wants to give confidence to us, he places salvation on this continuum in this panorama and we see it. And he uses this past tense kind of way to remind us that it's as sure as it can possibly be. Because it's God who is affecting and bringing about our salvation from beginning to end. And so as we look at this passage, we're going to look at what we don't know. We're going to look at what God knows. And then finally, what we must come to know. So first of all, what don't we know? We see here, Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, and he goes on to say that we do not know how to pray or what to pray for as we ought. It's important that we know what we don't know. A number of years ago, when I was uh, first year on uh, staff with Campus Crusade for Christ, my first placement was at the University of North Dakota. Nobody goes to Grand Forks, North Dakota, unless you're sent there or on purpose or lost. And you're very lost if you end up there. But anyway, I was, I was placed there, I was on staff and working with freshmen in a dorm. And, and one of the, those first Bible studies I led, a bunch of freshmen, and of course, how do you start those? You ask a few kind of icebreaker questions, and I ask a question, what do you guys like to do in your spare time? And one of the students said that he liked to play racquetball. And of course, I love to play racquetball, played for a long time, and, and said, of course, you know, wanted to make that connection. I said, hey, I like to play racquetball too, we should play sometime. And this freshman, who is... You know, a young kid, he looks at me and with the most sincere way, he goes, sure, if you want to get beat. And I looked at him and I went, who are you? I mean, what, what, what on earth are you thinking that, you know, how would you say that? Why would you say it quite like that? And he actually didn't say it quite like that. He wasn't quite so nice even as that. And I'm sitting there going, okay, we're playing, buddy. <laughs> Let's go. So we set a time and we set a date and we went and played. You know, and I killed him. This, this... <laughs> this guy, 
I get on the court, I'm already, you know, I'm like, man, I'm psyched up. I'm going to take this freshman down, you know, and he couldn't play racquetball. And for the life of me, I'm, I'm playing and just, you know, beating him to no end and trying to say nice things about him, like, nice shot, you know, or something like that. And through the course of the game, I'm going, I'm thinking, why would he have responded to me like he did? Why did he say, sure, if you want to get beat, what, what's going on with this guy? Anyway, is he, not, is he not in touch with reality? Well, you know what I found out was that this young man had played racquetball a few times, but he had played guys who had never played the game before. And of course, he beat them, and he beat them pretty badly. And of course, what did he think about himself was, I'm a pretty good player. I beat these guys, I'm a good player, but he had never played anybody who really knew how to play the game. And the problem with this young man was that he didn't know what he didn't know. He wasn't even aware of what he, what, what, he, what he didn't know. And Paul here, and the beauty of Scripture, is that God does not want us to be unaware of what's true of us. Otherwise, we can walk around our lives not knowing what we don't know. And he says, the Spirit comes to help us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. And it's important for us as we read this not to miss that reality that we are weak. That what is most true of us, what most characterizes us as followers of Christ, as children of God is still that we are weak. And that this weakness is seen in and through the way that we pray. And this fundamental weakness is certainly contrasted by the power of God. If God is complete and powerful and lacks nothing, we lack virtually everything. And we need Him. We're inadequate. We're impotent. We're unable. We need Him to be able to give us strength. We need to recognize where we are. The weakness, it's not weakness says as much as it's a weakness. It's a general characteristic of who we are. Sometimes we're more aware of that and sometimes we're less aware of that. But the scripture reminds us of our weakness. That God has given us everything we have. The very breath in our nostrils. The next breath we have is a gift of Him. The mind to think, bodies to use, gifts to exercise, all come from him. There's nothing we have in and of ourselves. This weakness here is emphasized by the context of it's seen readily in the midst of this world that we live of the already not yet. Of the promise between promise and fulfillment. We live wrestling with, okay, you know, what what does that look like? It looks like it's, it's revealed in our praying. It's seen in that way. No, weakness here is not indicted. It's not a sin. He doesn't say it shouldn't be weak. He just states that we are weak. And that's, we need to understand that. The better we understand that, the better off we will be before God. And note that the Spirit doesn't make us not weak. He helps us in the midst of our weakness. And so our life will be characterized from now until eternity, or at least in this, this part of life will be characterized by weakness. And certainly Paul understands this idea of weakness. And if you'll turn with me to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we see a, an encounter here with, with God and where God wants to reveal to Paul the, the importance of understanding weakness, but even more so how God's strength is put on display in the midst of our weakness. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, somewhat familiar passage. I'm going to read 7 through 12 as we, we see this interaction Where Paul, he says in verse 7, So to keep me from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. 
Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul understands that weaknesses and understanding that is a way in which God's power is put on display. And we see that from the Romans 8 passage that in this weakness, the Spirit comes and He helps us. He assists us in the midst of our weakness to give us what we need. Our weakness is seen in our praying As he goes on to say what we don't know. He says we don't know what to pray for as we ought. And what he's saying here isn't so much we don't know how to pray. And I think the beauty is that God has provided a way to pray. Access to the throne room. The very presence of God. He's given us words in a kind of a form in the Lord's prayer that we follow. And yet as we in in the midst of our lives. There's so many times where we come into those situations. We don't know what to pray for. We don't know exactly how do we pray in regards to particular situations. And of course the classic question for us is, do I pray for deliverance? Or do I pray for strength in the midst of it? What is it and how is it that I pray? What are the words that I use as I come to God? What, is, what are His intentions in the, midst, in the midst of this? And so we ask the question and Paul says, we don't know what to pray for as we ought. We're not sure exactly what words to use And indeed, we fumble around and we do our best to try to express something to God. And yet we know that all that we pray needs to be in accordance with His will. But we don't know in many particular situations exactly what He intends to do. And so our weakness is seen. And even as we come to God, we're not sure how to pray and how to deal with the circumstances in which we find ourselves. Indeed, Paul didn't know how to pray. He said, I asked three times that this be removed, this thorn of the flesh. And every time God says no. That's not my intention. There's a great passage in Matthew and Mark. It's in a couple different places where uh, James and John, and in one case it's his mother, their mother, and in another case it's them. They come and they say, Jesus, um, grant that we could sit on, on either side of you in your kingdom. And you remember Jesus' words to them. He said, you don't even know what you're asking. You don't know the kinds of things that you want. So they weren't even aware of how to request of Jesus uh, of these things. And, he says, and so we are in the same situation. And our requests reveal our weakness. They reveal that we don't know how to pray. As we come before him. We're not sure exactly what to pray. Our weakness is also seen in our prayerlessness. And we. One of the, one of the struggles even personally this week. Was, was how easy it is for me to, to live life without praying. To go kind of day in and day out. And, and, and not going before the Lord. And. In certain circumstances, for example, when I'm, I have to preach, all of a sudden I find myself praying. And yet I go, does this characterize my life? And it's a struggle. And I realize I'm weak in this area of praying. But our weakness is also seen in our inability to express our needs. You know, in those moments, those times, those situations where we see very clearly our need for Christ. We see our need and we come to him and we don't even know what to say. We don't even know how to pray to him. We don't even know exactly how to pray in those circumstances. And the beauty of this passage is we see what we lack. We're going to find that God will fill in exactly what we need. When we don't have words, he gives words as his spirit intercedes for us. Because our needs go far beyond our power of speech even to express them. 
So we, what we don't know can hinder us. What we don't understand. And so it's important that we understand our weakness. It's important that we understand that, you know, we're not sure how to pray, exactly what to pray. Otherwise, that will keep us from praying and going before God in the right kind of way. But what God knows will be sufficient. What God knows will fill in the gap to fill in our weakness, our deficiencies. And so in verse 20, the end of 26, we see the picture of this spirit interceding for us with these groans. And then in verse 27, we have this picture of God and what he knows. It says, and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the spirit. And so we see what God knows will fill in the gap. And it's interesting that phrase, he who searches hearts. Lots of question is, why does Paul exactly use that description of God? What is he describing as the one who searches hearts in this circumstance? And I think it's because for us, we need to know that God knows us. That he knows us intimately. That even though we don't know, we do not understand ourselves, he searches our hearts and he knows us intimately. Weaknesses, sin, deficiencies, and all. Nothing about our us will surprise him. So he knows us intimately, and that's so helpful for us. There's a, it's a beautiful description to remind us that he cares about us, and that even though he knows that we lack, that he will give us what we need. He also knows the mind of the Spirit. He knows what the Spirit is doing in our lives, because the Spirit is bringing about his will in our lives. And so he knows us. He knows what the mind of the Spirit is. Of course, the Trinity, the picture there of God and the Holy Spirit and the Son at work in our lives, all according to the will of the Father. A great picture for us. He knows us. He knows the mind of the Spirit. And I think what's helpful for us to know also and to remember is that he also knows ultimately what he's doing. He knows his good will, and he knows exactly how to bring about what's good in our lives. He knows the ends, and he knows the means that are best in bringing that out. And so we see what God knows, and we see what he provides for us what he enables us through the, the work of his spirit. Where he says there at the end of, of verse 26, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. That when we lack, the spirit actually comes and, and intercedes for us. Lots of questions of exactly what's taking place. Lots of dis- disagreement as well. But I think what's most important for us to understand is that God has supplied our need in the spirit. That God's spirit actually helps us in communicating with God. He helps us in that process. And the question we ask is, what about the groanings? Who is it that's groaning? Is it us or is it the Spirit? And there's differences of opinion. I think what we find here, and I think what what is perhaps more accurate understanding of this, is that the groanings are actually ours. Earlier on in this text, in verses 22 and 23, we see that the creation is groaning. That all of creation is groaning as it awaits what God will do. And then it says that we groan as well. And indeed, the, the, the groaning of creation is metaphorical. It's a, it's a picture of what creation is, is, was made for. Creation itself isn't necessarily making noises. But for us, there's oftentimes that our groanings might accompany sounds. And if you've been in those moments, those times, as you pour your heart out to God, sometimes there just are not words. And sometimes all that will be found there are kinds of noises and groans where you go, I don't know what to pray. I don't know what to say to you. And the beauty of the picture that Paul says here in those moments of time when we don't have words, we don't know exactly what words to use, that the Spirit will take those words and He will, if you will, interpret, translate them for God. And He makes our prayers effective. The Spirit takes our prayers 
which at times are little more than these groans or sighs, and by his intercession makes them effective before God. When we don't know what to pray for, he intercedes for us. And that's the great picture of this. What we don't have, what we don't know, God says, I will provide. I will be sufficient. And even as you pray, which we should pray, this should not keep us from praying, even if we're not exactly sure what to pray for, but understanding that the Spirit will enable us in that. And he will allow those prayers to be effective as we seek to, to, to seek his face. So what we don't know can hinder us. What God knows and provides is important for us. And then in verse 28, we find what we must know. We must come to understand. As we understand that, that God is sufficient in the midst of our praying, we can come to know and understand that all things work together for good according to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And this gives us great confidence as we live. It gives us a kind of security and assurance as we walk in our lives. All that we know is that God can bring these things about. The question we ask is, what's, what's the crux of this? It's that all things work together for good. That, that what he is doing is bringing about good in all things. Sometimes it's more visible, sometimes it's less visible for us. But in every circumstance, in every situation we find ourselves, good is being accomplished. Who's the one that receives the good? Who's the one that's benefiting? It's those who love God, those who are called by, according to his purpose. It's believers. It's those who are his children that can claim the promise that's here in the midst of our difficulties, in the midst of our longing, our groaning, that we can claim the promise that what will come out of this will be good. And then who is it that's accomplishing it? This isn't happening by accident. It's happening because God intends it to happen. And so in this passage we find that we can be assured, we can know for a fact that God is bringing this about. Now the question for us, the key, the difficulty for us is the def- definition of what is good. And that oftentimes is what we differ, where we differ with God. What he says is good and the, the means through which he intends to bring good about is where we go, is this really good? Is this, is this your good intention in the midst of the difficulties that we find ourselves? And so we find ourselves wrestling with the goodness of God, wrestling with his definition and wrestling with ours. His vision for this goodness worked out in our lives. We might, and at times we might not necessarily disagree with his ends to be conformed to the image of Christ, but we might disagree with his means. How is it that he's working that out? We'd say, isn't there a better way you can do this? Isn't there an easier way that you can work this out? And remember that his ends and his means are good and perfect. As we consider the goodness of God, we want to consider even this classic line from the Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe. If you've read the book where you have Aslan coming and the beavers talking to the children. And they're trying to explain this lion who's going to come. And of course they're trying to get the picture straight. If you remember that line, they say, is he quite safe was the question. And the response is, no, he's not safe, but he's good. And in the goodness of God there, C.S. Lewis separates the safety and the goodness of God. And as we look to the cross of Christ, we see that there's a severity in the goodness of God. That it's not always safe, but it is ultimately good. And so as we wrestle with this difference in our understanding of what is good, we need to remember, though, who we are. Remember our weakness. Remember that we're not sure exactly how to pray or what to pray for. That's the condition we find ourselves in. And so instead of instructing God, we need to remember 
that we need to be the ones that are instructed in the midst of those circumstances. Our natural condition will often persuade us to wrongly define God's terms. And we need to remember that he's the definer. He will define ultimately what is good. So what's good in this context? A couple things that will be helpful for us. I've already alluded to one. What's good in verse 29? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. We could say it very simply. What is good is whatever brings about our conformity to the image of his son. That what God is doing is doing more than just making us happy or or giving us an easy life or a kind of comfortable life. His intentions are that we would look like his son. That we would think like Jesus. That we would live by faith in the same way that Christ did. And so there's a a sense in which his, his ends, his goal is that we would become like Christ. This good is seen in anything which conforms us to his likeness. And we need to keep in mind again that God's good and perfect means are bringing about his ends. And so what is good is, is both the process as well as the product that God is bringing about. But Paul goes on and he describes what's taking place, the good and the con- being conformed to the image of Christ. In, in the context of a family, he says, predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. That would be the firstborn. And so we have a, p- a picture of a family in view. So what's good isn't just the one What's good is the many. What's even better is many being conformed so that Christ would be the firstborn among many brothers, many siblings that he would have, that we would be becoming like him. And so we see the good in the many, but there's also a corporate picture here. There's a corporate picture in that what's beautiful about this is as we walk through difficulties individually. And in those difficulties, God is bringing about what's good. There's something corporately that needs to be taking place. There's something corporately that takes place in the midst as as one person struggles, as we come around them and encourage them, we learn. I was just talking with Al Nagin this morning, and he went with a bunch of of folks up to um, Iowa this last weekend for the last few days to help do some work up there. And his words when he came back were so good. He said, he goes, we didn't go just for them. He said, we went for us. We need that. We as a church need to be involved in those kinds of things. And we were reminded the corporate aspect of this. As we're individually conformed to the image of Son. So we will be corporately conformed to the image of Christ. So we see that goodness is both individually being conformed. As well as corporately in and amongst each other. Now I want to conclude with this. We see that what we don't know. And what we don't know can hinder us. We see what God knows is sufficient for us. And then we see that what we must know is that all things do work for good, but God's definition and understanding of good is quite different from ours. So the question is, how is it then that we can know that all things work together for good? How is it that we can know that? The tense of that that term, that verb, isn't just a one-time deal, although we wish it were. We wish it was a one-time shot. We would know it and never question it. But it's a moment-by-moment understanding that this is true. And there's a few things I want to mention is that how we can know this. First of all, we know it by faith. We know that God works all things for good by faith. And that's because we need faith to enable us to see when our physical eyes don't necessarily tell us that this is good. So we need to moment by moment be trusting God that this is good. And so we come to this passage and we're reminding and sharpening each other and encouraging each other that by faith we walk this life. 
And so by faith we must believe. Secondly, we can know that all things work together for good by recognizing our weakness and our inability to understand this. And so we need to know even going in that we can even mislead ourselves. That we can mislead ourselves as to what God is doing, what this good looks like. And, and Martin Lloyd-Jones said this. He said, so before we rush thoughtlessly into prayer, let us talk to ourselves about the possibility of our weakness misleading us. And read that one more time. He says, so before we rush thoughtlessly into prayer, let us talk to ourselves about the possibility of our weakness misleading us. What an amazing thought that our weakness can mislead us in prayer. I remember a number of years ago when we were just coming on staff with Campus Crusade and and it was our first term and doing the support raising thing. Uh, there was no money coming in, had no paychecks coming from them. I was working part-time stocking shelves at a grocery store. And I still remember the season of about a week to two weeks where in my prayers I became convinced that the circumstances that I found myself in were not good and indeed could not be good. And it convinced myself in my praying, in my reading, that, that I must remove myself from this difficult circumstance because this couldn't be good. I had misled myself. I misunderstood God's goodness and that led me in a direction. And of course the beauty of the body was a phone call to a trusted friend reminded me that maybe you should rethink this one. Maybe you're being misled. And what a beautiful conversation that was. That God would say, no, my idea of good might not be quite like yours. And indeed what I'm doing is adjusting your idea of good to my idea of good. And that's the life that we find ourselves in. So we need to recognize our weakness, not allow it to uh, mislead us. Thirdly, we understand that all things work together for good as, our, as we're transformed. There's a passage in, ver- in chapter 12, verse 2, Paul, later on here in Romans, where he challenges and he, he charges us to not be conformed any longer to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we will be able to discern and know God's will. And you remember the, the characteristics, the description of God's will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So there's, there's a transformation that takes place, a renewal of our minds so we can understand what's good. As well, we can fight the temptation to be conformed to the world's definition of good. Because oftentimes, we default to what the world says is good. And so as our minds are renewed, we're able to see what God's will is and to abide by it. The final point in terms of understanding and knowing that all things work together for good. There's an implication in this verse. And the implication is subtle, but I think it's there. And the implication is an argument that Paul makes, I think. It's, a, it's an argument kind of from greater to lesser. And this is kind of how the argument goes. In all things, God works together for good for those who love God and are called according to this purpose. And the question we ask is, what's the greatest example that that truth has been evidenced. What's the greatest example that we can see? And of course, the Sunday school answer to that is Jesus. We understand that he has epitomized it. Paul says, we know this. How do we know this? Because we have seen it in Christ. The greatest example of one who loved God, the greatest example of one who was called and lived according to his purpose, is the greatest example of good. And so Paul has a view to the cross As his eyes are fixed on the cross and what Christ has done, he realizes we can know that all things work together for good because 
We can see it evidenced in Christ. The greatest example, the greatest tragedy turned to the greatest good. And so we can know it as we look to Him. We can know it as we understand what He has done. And then as we view our own difficulties, our own suffering through that lens of the cross, we're able to understand that all things do work for good. Not in the way necessarily we might think, but in the way that God intends. And so as we know this, as we understand this, our, the ground of our confidence grows. As we know that all things work together for good. I was talking with Kelly this last week or two and just kind of, maybe you do this before a semester, kind of reevaluating where things are in schedule. And it was interesting, she just made a comment. She said, you know, it's interesting. I was looking back through some of my journals and some of the passages I've read. And she goes, you know, the, the passages that are most dear to me, the passages which I, that are most rich in terms of my understanding, it's funny how this works, but it's those passages that I clung to in the midst of the, the deepest and most difficult times in my life. And the beauty of the picture of what God does in terms of the good in our lives is right there in the midst of our suffering and our difficulties. What we find is that what we don't know can hinder us. And so we need to ask God and the Spirit to help us in our weakness, to understand that we don't know exactly what to pray But the beauty is that his spirit will, because God knows us, he knows the mind of the spirit, that the spirit intercedes for us, giving us words, if you will, to pray, to make our prayers effectual, to be sufficient for us, and that enables us to know that all things work together for good. God enables us, and that gives us great confidence as we walk day in and day out with God. I'm going to take this, this opportunity, even as we've talked about praying and, and, and kind of not knowing what to pray and how to pray and what to pray for and, and the Spirit interceding. Um, you see in your, your bulletins, it's the, the prayers of the people. This is the time that we gather as a congregation. And so I'm going to close this time by just praying for us as a congregation. And even, and you hear it when our elders pray, you, you see it when you attempt to pray for difficult circumstances. Words kind of escape us, and we do the best we can. And yet the beauty is that God will take them, translate them, make our prayers effective. And so let's go before God this morning with the great hope that he will make our prayers effective. Oh, Father, we are grateful this morning that you do not allow us to live in this kind of ignorance, but that you will enable us to see our weakness, but you haven't left us in that. And even though we know that we don't know exactly what to pray for as we ought, that your spirit will enable us to pray and make those words, those prayers effective. So as we come before you, we come with this great need of you to intercede. We're grateful that the ground of our confidence is sure because it's on Christ. And as we come boldly before the throne of grace, there's a a great confidence we have because he is our mediator before you and we have the spirit interceding for us taking our prayers and expressing them according to your will. And so that's our great desire this morning as we pray. And so we're grateful for that confidence. And yet as people who are weak, people who have great needs, we express them to you. And and a a list of a few that we have and many others that aren't necessarily listed, but we pray for Steph Hannah this morning. I pray for the recovery of her hip surgery that she's had, the pain and the, the challenge that's there. Oh, Father, would you be with her and with her family? Would you bring others around them to encourage them? Would you enable her to rest in you? For Howard Densdale, Bob Densdale's father, is in hospice. And if 
Father, what a great confidence of knowing that he knows you. And at this point, they're just trusting and waiting on your timing and in him being taken. And so we pray for Bob and his family and all those around him. Pray for Chris Johnson and his surgery, the wrist surgery, and continue to enable him, provide for them, and to enable him to recover quickly and to have this full use of his wrist and his hand. For Melissa Foster, she deals with cancer and continues to heal and and treatment for that. And Father, for Eileen Huffman and for their family, um, we pray for your presence, that you would be there, that you would bring healing, that you would bring a kind of comfort, that you would be close to them. In all of our weaknesses, we look to you. Father, so many activities starting this semester, this fall. Father, make them more than just activities. Enable them to bring your kingdom Enable them to build up your people and to proclaim your gospel. And Father, we pray for our missionaries. We think of so many and talked about Brad Supple earlier. We're grateful for the the team that just returned from uh, Iowa and the work that they could do and the work that was done in them and the work that's done in us as a result. Uh, We pray for Leanne Dole this morning with Campus Crusade in New York City. Enable her to work with the students to move into that community of the art community with your gospel. Uh, for Jeff and Sarah McKinney, uh, chaplain in Iraq right now, be with, be with him, protect him, and as well be with Sarah. We're grateful that the days are, are becoming smaller, that he will be able to return home. And Father, for Don Miller uh, with Campus Crusade in Spain, and we pray for her as well. Uh, encourage her, continue to use her there. And as we enter the political season here, Father, with so much going on, our prayer ultimately is that you would work in and through our government officials. You enable them to lead justly and in ways that would honor you. And even as this campaign begins in full swing now, um, with the elections coming up, Father, that, that we as your people and as citizens of this country, you would enable us to be active in a way that would honor you and that you would lead us in that. Father, strengthen us in our weakness. Enable us to care for those in need. Help us to see the good in the way that you work with the eyes of our heart through the eyes of faith. Help us, Father, to take the gospel which demonstrates that greatest good to those in need. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I would ask you to stand now for the benediction. The, the response to the benediction this morning is, is going to be singing. We're going to sing again. So as the worship team comes, let me... Give us this great benediction, these great words of God to us. Now to him who is able, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.